I'm Arie Schwartz, along with Eli Horowitz, and welcome to the WNBA Insider Show. Each week, we cover various topics important to the W. Using X's and O's, along with key stats, we bring honest and critical analysis. This week, we got some important stuff going on. First of all, I'm just going to start it off with congratulating Eli on his uh, first article for ESPN, breaking down the winners and losers of the WNBA free agency period. And we're going to dive right in. Um, Eli, we had been talking about this article that you were working on and kind of how you piece together who is a winner, who is a looter, a loser. Do you want to just start by kind of giving a background? Cause there's a lot of caveats when you're talking about a broad topic such as this. Do you want to kind of give the caveats before we even enter the debate? Yeah. And appreciate the congrats. So basically I felt like there was a need for this piece because everyone wants to talk about the draft. And believe me, I'm as excited as everyone. If you've been following my Twitter, I'm, you know, I'm surprised I haven't been fired yet from my day job, how much I've been tweeting. <laughs> but, you know, at the end of the day, I, 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 I thought about it and I was like, man, like, we just had an entire free agency period since February. And I feel like a lot of women's basketball fans were probably focused on the NCAA tournament, rightfully so. So I thought it was important before we get to the draft Let's take a look at kind of where, where the teams are because there were some moves. And what I did was I kind of extended it from free agency. So what I, what I factored in was basically anything in the offseason. So that includes obviously free agent signings. That included trades. That included coaching changes. Uh, that included management changes. So, for example, uh, Atlanta brought in both a new coach but also a new GM. And so what that meant is I didn't hold it against them that they traded their first-round pick last season under a different management. So basically, I just factored in any kind of off-season moves going into the draft and came away. Yeah, so also yeah. Don't, don't, don't forget about uh, you know players deciding that they will not be t- partaking in this season, i.e., uh, Ramu uh, and also uh, Emma Miesman. Oh, right. As well as players coming back. So I did factor in like an Angel McCautry extending and coming back. Um, you know, Liz Cambage, Shanae with Connecticut. So pretty much factored in everything. But like I said, if it was a regime change, I didn't hold it against them what past people did. Um, and yeah, and so I basically came away with five winners, three losers, and four teams that I kind of, you know, felt like were kind of on the bubble and pretty neutral. All right, so I mean, I think it's it's easy to to skim over the winners, at least the biggest winners and whatnot. And and when it comes to the losers, that's kind of the meat and potatoes of this article, at least in my mind. Um, you know, minus one one specific winner. But why don't we start off with just a brief overview of, of what Atlanta has done this offseason that, in your mind, makes them the biggest winner? Yeah, and by the way, you know, for those who didn't read the piece yet, I spoke with a coach or a GM from all 12 teams. So this, this took, you know, about three weeks to really put together. I had, length, you know, hour-long conversations with every team. Um, at the end of the day, it was my opinion. It was a column. But... I did factor in those conversations and I kind of gave those teams a chance to advocate for, advocate for their moves. Um, but yeah, out of the five winners, I, I called Atlanta the biggest winner. So I kind of had them in their own tier. And for me, it came down to this. I thought they got the two best unrestricted free agents in Renee Montgomery, who is a backup point guard, but probably um, one of the, if not the best bench piece in the WNBA. And then Jessica Breeland, you bring in a player that can start for you at the four who added a bit of a three-point game last year. We know how great she is defensively and on the glass. And based off my reporting and my own opinion, those were the two most coveted players. So, I mean, it's kind of a slant, a home run if you can get both. Uh, then they also, you know, they bring back Angel McCautry, and that wasn't a guarantee. They're also able to extend her, um, so they have her for three years as opposed to just one. Um, and, you know, they also made a coaching change and a GM change. They brought in Nikki Collin, who was the assistant for Connecticut, and Chris 
Sanko, who was the GM in Connecticut before Kurt took over the GM responsibilities. And so I felt like they brought in a regime that is coming from an excellent culture. Uh, the only two knocks you'd probably say are one, just that it is a new coach, so there's no guarantees. And two, they did lose Sancho Little, who decided to go sign with Phoenix. But I just feel like, for me, Breland is actually a bit of an upgrade because I think they do similar things defensively, but I think Breland has a more versatile offensive game. So I thought they're, um, you know, again, they're going to have to put it together and prove it, but I thought their free agency and offseason period was, you know, a five out of five. Yeah, I, I, I think we both definitely agree on that. Atlanta put themselves in the conversation. If you want to hear more about uh, Renee Montgomery and her signing and leaving the Minnesota Lynx for Atlanta, uh, make sure to check out our previous week's podcast slash show uh, on iTunes where we do interview Renee Montgomery and get some really cool pieces just about what it's like to be a free, uh, unrestricted free agent in the W. So shout out to her. Um, moving on to the Phoenix Mercury, a team that a lot of teams, you know, they didn't make any giant moves as far as like, oh my God, they signed this person. As we said, Atlanta kind of got the two big names. So talk to me about why you think the Mercury are a winner when, you know, they didn't necessarily make any star-studded uh, page-turning moves. Well, they they solidified three key positions, um, Sancho, Little at the four, and, and Initially, I was a little critical about it um, just because they have Camille Little, and I feel like it is a little redundant. But that was one where, again, this is why you do the reporting. And I felt like through my conversations, I I just realized that, um, you know, Little is probably even more, you know, she she has a pretty good mid-range, and she can be even more tenacious than Camille. And while it is redundant, there's also a flip side to that, which means for 40, you know, for a full 40 minutes – you have to go up against Camille Little or Sancho Little. Like, you're not going to get a break. You have, like, two starting quality fours there. And so I thought, I think defensively with Griner and those two, it's going to be really hard to get to the rim. Um, you bring back Dewana Bonner. That's big. Who is another. That's big. That's big. And, 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 you know, she's not as young as she used to be, but if she can give you 12 to 14 points – and then, obviously, the trade for January. And that's one we talked about a lot. I think we were both initially critical just because we thought, man, this is such a good draft. And, um, you know, they're giving up a first-round pick. But, again, like when you really take a step back and say, look, Tarazi maybe has one, two more years in her. Dewana Bonner is a veteran. Um, this is a veteran-heavy team. And I really do think they have a shot at the title this year. They're not my pick, but they're in the mix. And so I think when you really, really are honest with yourself and think, you know, adding January who can start and shoot the three and play great defense versus like drafting what, who would be at eight, maybe Alexi Brown. Like, I think it's just like a, it's a move they had to make. It's bittersweet, but it's a move they had to make. And I think like what we saw in the playoffs last year with them is, their biggest flaw was just you could really get away with double-teaming Brittany Griner. You know, there was just too many liabilities on the court offensively. And so I think now you have January, Bonner, and even Little a little bit with her mid-range jumper, it's going to be a lot harder to get away with just double-teaming Griner every time down the court. I, you know, So again, I'll, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I think – I've been very hard on the Mercury because I have very high expectations, I think, for, for Griner. Um, but I do have to agree that they did make some moves that kind of solidify their positioning. And last year, you know, they made a, a, a late season push and then proceeded to use their vet savviness to, to succeed in the playoffs. So I think I definitely have to agree that they definitely made moves that are going to solidify them and, in my opinion, not be, you know, having to make a late season push to make the playoffs well, they'll be in a much more secure situation than they were last year. Exactly. Um, and, and we'll get to Minnesota later, but I think after we, – we both were critical of them for trading first-round picks, but after reflecting on it, Phoenix, Phoenix has just made more sense to me as far as what they got in return. Because another thing I mentioned in my piece is, like, they couldn't guard Chelsea Gray in that series last year. And then if you think about if they're matching up with 
uh, Minnesota, you know, Maya Moore's there. And Bonner, you know, while she is that natural matchup with Moore, um, you're going to need more than one defender, especially when you're when you're trying to rely on veterans. I think January also brings defense um, as well. So yeah, let, let's move on from them. But they, yeah, well, that was that was a perfect segue as you were talking about uh, as you're talking about the front court, or the back court of the LA Sparks. Moving on to the LA Sparks, they were uh, dubbed by you another winner, which I think is interesting because, in my opinion. Well, the Sparks really made, what, three moves, let's say. They got Beard back. Okay, they re-signed Sims. And probably the bigger move, um, Cappy Pondexter signing to the team, uh, you know, in, in ways that a lot of people were confused how that was going to happen. Do you see this team, do you view them as a winner just because they got, in a, you know, they kept their roster and they got a vet? Or do you see this team got better? I put them as a winner because they were able to add a piece without giving anything up, right? The other contenders, like Phoenix, they add January, but they have to give up a pick. Uh, Minnesota had to give up a pick. Um, LA didn't have to give anything up. And yeah, you mentioned it was interesting. And like, let's just clear the record because it's in the article, you know, the Odyssey Sims. You know, she she signed her qualifying offer of, of sixty five thousand. Um, even though she was due now for an upgraded max of 113. And once that happened, you know, that, that, I, I, you know, we're not going to get into exactly what happened um, and how it all shook down. But once she signed at that price point, that left enough cap room for them to sign uh, Pondexter. But wait, please, we were me. also, please tell me that was a pun on purpose cap room well that's that's why i didn't say cappy <laughs> i actually thought about that in my head and i was like i'm not gonna give i'm not gonna do it so i just said <laughs> dexter um but uh yeah i mean make no mistake if 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 sims doesn't sign for sixty five thousand, they would not have had enough cap room um to bring in pondexter so i think we're we're all surprised that happened um but that's neither here nor there you know it is what it is and so, I, you know, I look at them as a winner just in the sense that I felt like that's they were one guard. I've been saying this all offseason. I feel they were one guard away in that finals. Um, Raquana Williams was the only guard who got minutes, and she barely played, and she wasn't 100% healthy. But she's undersized, and other than being a defensive spark plug, I think offensively, um, I don't know. She, she shows flashes. Um, but there's something about her game that still feels a little erratic, especially at the highest levels. And look, Cappy's had her worst season of her career last year, but still she's never – she's averaged double figures her whole career. And if, if she can come into a game four of the finals and drop 10 points in a third quarter surge, that, that could be the difference of winning a, a decisive game. So I feel like for where they are as a contender, they upgraded their roster without giving anything up. And I think we're seeing a growth from L.A. I don't want to compare L.A. to Minnesota, but just in the sense of L.A. realized, at least from our view and in our reporting, L.A. kind of realized that they needed that guard. They were one guard away. And you sold yourself short because you were saying that during, while we were making our podcasts for the, for the finals, you were saying, all right, if, if we go into if, – if the Sparks win these games, then we're good. But then after game two, you're like, oh, it's done. Minnesota's going to win because, you know, L.A.'s not using the bench and they don't have the guard. They're one guard away. You started saying that during the series, and I'm not going to say that L.A. took note, but what I will say is L.A. has taken note to kind of the blueprints that Minnesota has laid out in the past, which is getting vets that you can trust at a time of need on the bench so you don't have to test them in the, in the regular season. You know what they're going to deliver. Exactly. And that was the thing. We said that during the finals and I picked LA, but my whole thing was if they have one weakness, it's a lack of depth. And, you know, I was there live at game four. They were up two games to one. They had a chance to win that. I knew once they lost that game, they, I knew like my thing was, and I picked before the series, I said sparks and four links and five. And everyone said, you can't do that. You can't pick two teams. And I said, no, I'm not picking two teams. I'm saying my job is to be an analyst. I'm not a fan. So you're as an analyst, I believe the Sparks, you know, I picked the Sparks and I thought they could win it in four. But then I'm saying if they can't finish the job at home, 
They just didn't have the depth to go back and compete in another game. And I think you saw that, right? Like they just, they came out flat. They just didn't have it. And, and they made a little surge at the end of that game. And that's, I think that's a credit to how bad they wanted it. But they really, you know, really it felt like Minnesota from tip to finish had that game five. And I just think Cappy might make a difference there. Um, and even if she, like, she doesn't have to be prime Cappy Pondexter. But even 10, 12 quality minutes, that gives Odyssey Sims a rest. That gives Chelsea Gray a rest. That gives Elena Beard a rest, who at this stage in her career, I think, is playing too many minutes. So we know Agler prefers shorter rotations. So I, I just think this is really good for them to just have one other player in the mix that I think he will give some minutes to because she's a veteran. I completely agree with that, and I think it's going to make it's it's got to be scary for the teams like the Lynx and the Mercury. Uh, and even Connecticut, who who's trying to make that next step. So moving on to the teams that again are still in the other winners category, the Indiana Fever. Now, why do you, now? I'll be straight up. I think they're a winner just because when the when the off season started to right now, they made tough moves that make them better or give them the opportunity to be better. I should say. Yeah, I'll keep this one short and sweet. Um, they went into the off season. In, in a rebuild mode and they traded January for the eighth pick and that alone showed me okay you know I'm not saying Pokey Chapman will necessarily turn things around I mean it, we'll wait and see but at least I respect the fact that she acknowledged where they were and made that difficult decision to trade somebody who's obviously a fan favorite obviously a historic player in that organization there might be other coaches or GMs who would have said no, we're not going to trade January. We're going to let her retire here. And she made the difficult choice to say, no, we need to make moves to get younger and get draft assets. And now they have the second and eighth pick in a very strong draft. Um, and also I added in my piece, I like the move to trade the second round pick to Kayla Alexander. Um, you could argue, no, shouldn't they be keeping picks because they're trying to rebuild? But I feel like Alexander proved last year she had a career high in true shooting percentage. And she proved that at worst, she's a quality backup with the potential to play starter minutes. Like, I think she's kind of like a sixth, seventh man type of role, but she can start on like a team like Indy that's rebuilding. And so I think for like a, a late second round pick or something, like that's worth it. So I think they did a nice job of adding a player with some upside for cheap and then getting a really, really quality draft pick. Well, that's the thing. I mean, they, they still have another pick. It wasn't like it was their early second-round pick, too. So so they really didn't lose out. Um, moving on, the Dallas Wings. Now, the Wings, I think, made arguably the biggest move in all of free agency because this is someone that it was missed from the league for a while. Uh, Liz Combege comes back, and... I mean, I mean, she immediately changes the, the, the shape of this Dallas team when you're talking about comparing them to other teams and how they're going to compete. Uh, why don't you lay out some thoughts on that? Yeah, this one was tough because, I, I don't know, it almost like if I have, and I, you know me, I, I give real talk. If I had any regrets on the piece, in some ways I feel like, well, I called Dallas a winner because they're bringing back Cambage, but then I didn't call Connecticut a winner as bringing back Shanae. So I'm like, was that inconsistent? You know, fair enough if there's a critique. But I think for me, it was more that I look at Dallas as they were desperate for a center, desperate for rim protection, desperate for more rebounding. And while their offense is predicated on attacking the basket, spreading out, they had no post game. And we know in the WNBA, it's not quite at the level of the NBA where it's all run and gun. I mean, this is still a league with dominant posts, and you got to have someone. And so I just think, even though they didn't do too much else in free agency, they brought back the players they wanted. And then, you know, they let Courtney Paris walk, and they bring in Cam Beige. And I think, like, that's a, a very significant upgrade. And the thing is, like, Cam Beige, if she can be at her best, is like an all-star level player. So... I ultimately gave him that nod as the winner, but you can call me out if that's inconsistent um, given Connecticut is also bringing back a key piece, and I didn't call them a winner. Man, you're just asking for the hate mail. Um, 
Moving on to something that will probably get us the most hate mail, <laughs> the losers of the free agency period of 2018 for the WNBA, the Minnesota Lynx. And I, I just want to read uh, your, your first sentence here because maybe this will quell the, the hate mail and like the, the firebombs that are coming at us. Let's be clear. All right, this is direct from, from the article. Let's be clear. As long as the Lynx are coached by Cheryl Reeve, and have Maya Moore, Sylvia Fowles, Simone Augustus, Lindsay Whalen, Rebecca Brunson. They are still contenders. And I think that has to be the preface when you're talking about the defending champs and calling them losers. Yeah, and in some ways, like, I I feel like in a way, I didn't really have to preface it because at the end of the day, I'm analyzing free agency. I'm not analyzing. This wasn't power rankings, True. you know. Um, but I feel like we're still at a point in the coverage I don't know, whatever. That's that's for another day. But yeah, I, I did that preface because, again, I'm trying to make it clear they're still contenders. I'm just judging free agency, and I thought losing Renee Montgomery, um, it, at the end of the day, that's a downgrade. Um, they also lose Pearson, Perkins, Natasha Howard, who I think is a become, I think she went from like overrated to now almost being a little underrated. So look, they lose. They lost four out of their five bench players, and then they replace them with Kaiser, who has major injury questions. You know, and Connecticut, I think, brought was excited about her, and it didn't really work out. Tanisha Wright, who yeah, she's a good defensive player, but she hasn't played in a year, so I think there's no guarantees of what level she's currently at. And then Danielle Robinson, who I say in the piece. Um, She's never made a three in her career, and I think Montgomery brought that. So now it's like a really big downgrade as far as shooting and offensive production. And I think, you know, you know, Cheryl Reeve was insistent that she is 100% healthy, but I still think her, her PER and her analytics since her major injury of her Achilles has just hasn't been the same, you know, and like the numbers don't lie to some extent. And Achilles injury is a nasty injury. You know, uh, I, I kind of feel like it's one of those injuries that you just lose a step. Um, I don't know. So, yeah, I think at the end of the day, their roster, their bench isn't as good. Um, but having said that, they could still win the title. And especially if Alexis Jones takes another leap, um, they could be in trouble. But but don't you – I don't know. Do you agree? It just feels like they're one or two players short now as far as, like, scoring off the bench. Oh, I completely agree. And And – I have been extremely critical about these offseason moves, mainly because, and look, I've followed this team very closely for a while now. Um, Renee Montgomery, like you said, brought the three-point game from the bench. She was that spark plug on the bench that would have that speed, would have that kind of, um, uh, let's call it uh, a nitro kick or whatever. And Alexis Jones can have that. And so if you're telling me, that Alexis Jones is going to be filling that aspect of the role on the bench that Renee Montgomery had in that aspect? Fine, cool, I get that, awesome. All right, but let's just run through who their backups are, who their bench is, all right? And tell me how you're going to be able to score enough, all right, to contend with top teams, because last year the Lynx were able to not only have a bench that could play really good defense, but a bench that could also put the foot to the pedal on other teams or put the foot to the throat of other teams when other teams had to take a break or other teams will often try and take advantage of this all-star starting five taking a break. So the Lynx need to have people. So let's go over it real quick. All right. So you're going to have, uh, you're going to have Robinson at starting at the point. All right. Then let's say you got Alexis Jones. Then you got, um, uh, Zandalicini. All right. Then you got, uh, um, uh, Kaiser, and then you got uh, Temi. So if that's your starting five, there's it goes completely against what every every fan, everyone who knows what the Lynx have been doing in the past, it goes against that as far as the way that the coaching staff likes to have a stacked bench and move forward from that, and then have a couple young players that they sprinkle in when the time's right. So if this is like a changing of the guards in the sense of like the backup guards. And 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 finally, the Lynx are going to be putting that 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 next step for these young players, and that's amazing. But but you know you can't have it both ways. You can't tell me on the one hand uh, the Lynx needed um, 
a, a, a vet point guard to take over and do stuff, but she and she's going to take over for Renee and what Renee did, but she doesn't have that three-point ability. And then there's question marks on her defense when she's touted as a defensive specialist. So to me, the, the Lynx bench now has these big question marks uh, that are going to need to be answered early on or – I mean, they can't be answered on in the draft now. So they really need to be answered on early on unless something crazy happens. Yeah, and last thing on them, I think we should move on. But, you know, I feel like, you know, Cheryl Reeve didn't feel like with the 12th pick there would be someone quality there. Um, but with Stevens entering the draft, um, you know, that to some degree it, it pushes everyone back a little bit, right? So if you thought, like, Marie Gulich, for example, if you think if you thought, oh, she was going to be, you know, taken 12th, now she might be 13th or 11th or 12th. So, I mean, the odds only went up that someone good would have been there at 12. And it's kind of interesting because Alexis Jones was taken 12 last year. And I think she already showed that she's going to be at least a quality bench player in the WNBA, if not a starter down the road. So I just found that a little bit interesting. You're speaking my mind, man. All right, moving on to the newest team in the W, coached by Bill Lambeer, the Las Vegas Aces. Um, I mean, as as you put it, he put his stamp on the Aces right away, signing some big players, some big veteran players to get in there and kind of bring some age to the team. Well, let's talk about the Aces real quick. Yeah, again, this was one in my reporting that was a mixed bag. I would say like half the teams I talked to said the moves were good and half the teams I talked to said, um, you know, at least said that my argument was valid. I'll put it that way. Um, It was one of the more polarizing ones. For me, I just look at it like them in Indiana were like in clear rebuild situations and whereas Indiana made moves to get younger and get picks, Vegas brings in Tamra Young, Kelsey Bone, and Carolyn Swords, um, you know, two of those, you know, kind of more veteran players. Bone is still pretty young, but has had injury issues. And so they're not exactly bringing in fresh legs. And I know you could argue, well, of course, because they have a young team and they needed veteran presences. But then some of the people, some of the people I, some of the GMs I talked to said, um, you know, some of those players are known for not necessarily being the best teammates or locker room presence. So it kind of feels like they didn't address getting younger, getting more draft picks, nor bringing in like the type of veterans that really would teach and be leaders. And, and, and for all I know, I could be wrong. I don't know any of these players personally, but I'm just telling you what I learned from my reporting. Um, so given all that, it just seemed like in some ways – I don't know. It, it's hard. It sound. It sounds weird to say they got worse because it's not like they lost anyone critical. But I just look at it like I like their young bigs. I like Isabel Harrison. I like Hamby. I actually like Kayla Alexander, who they traded away. Um, so, you know, if Carolyn Swords is playing eighteen minutes and Kelsey Bones playing twenty minutes and what does that mean for these young players? I mean, even Asia Wilson or Stevens, who they bring in, like, are they going to lose some minutes um, for Kelsey Bone and, and Carolyn Swords? So, well, I mean, I don't, I don't want to beat it too much, but I agree with you on that because I think the biggest issue with the Aces was, yeah, they were struggling, but at least they kind of I, – I feel like they don't have – at least I don't feel like they have a direction right now. And I'm saying that in the sense of, Last year, they might have been struggling, but even towards the end of the season, we started to see something more from them. We started to see that they're a young team and that they're finally starting to figure some stuff out. And I don't want to say that like the panic button was hit too early, but to a certain extent, I think the panic button was hit a little too early. They have a lot of talent on this roster. They can run the ball, and they did not necessarily bring in veteran players that can feed into the style of ball that these young players are known or has showed that they can play in the W. Um, so I, I, I agree with you on that. I just, I would have liked to see them do some different moves, not necessarily to say that I, I, if I was GM, I would have like put my foot down and said, no, you can't do that. I just don't think they moved the needle in the right direction if, as it were. Um, the New York Liberty 
a team that had a lot of its uh, a lot of off court struggles that really affected their ability to do a lot in the off season. I'm curious your thoughts on them and how you how you decided that they were not winners or how how you decide where they place. Yeah, they were my final team in the loser category. And look, it, it was just an off season of turmoil. Um, the team, you know, Madison Square Garden, James Dolan attempted to sell the team. Seems as though they weren't able to. Um, they moved their they moved them from Madison Square Garden to Westchester County to a very small arena, and so I think ultimately I get a sense that that maybe cost them an opportunity to do some more damage in free agency. I mean, they didn't have the cap room to really do all that much, and they did bring back players. But I just feel like, listen, like I said, I factored in everything that happened in the offseason, and this is kind of a bizarre, peculiar situation, and it's not Katie Smith's fault. It's not anyone's fault that all this happened. But at the end of the day, it was still, I think, a rough offseason for that organization. And so I put them in the loser category. And then, you know, what's plagued them the last three years in the playoffs is that their offense just can't match their defense. And I don't really see what they did to address that. Yeah, I to me, New York is the one that's the most cut and dry um, as far as, like, there was just so much going on. They didn't really change anything. So unless Katie Smith is going to do a lot or one of these younger guards is really going to step up, like we've harped on many times, Liberty are are a true leader of their offense away from making that next leap. Uh, and, they, and they are a very skilled team. That's why they've been, you know, a top four team in the past however many seasons. But there is a ceiling, um, and I think they've kind of banged their head on it a few times. Um, moving on, looking at the, as you titled it, but what about the Seattle Storm? All right, they, they did, they made a move that, you know, you kind of pointed out was something that you were a fan of, at least on Seattle's side. Um, not to get into it too much, but on Seattle's side, do you think it was the right move, trading Natasha Howard for the uh, for the draft swap later next year? So remind me on um, the details of the draft swap. So uh, the draft swap is essentially that next season, head coach slash GM Cheryl Reeve has the choice to swap first-round picks with the Storm. So whoever you know, whichever the team does worse, that's who the Lynx pick is going to be. Yeah, I mean that was, I think, a pretty savvy move from Coach GM Reeve. Um, you know, I imagine Minnesota will have either the tenth, eleventh, or twelfth pick. Um, Seattle probably have what? You know, what do they have this year? Five. They should be a little bit better, so they'll probably have what six to eight. So, yeah, I mean, look, if, if they're swapping picks 12 to 6, that's a huge win for Minnesota. Um, if they're shopping picks 8 and 10, it's probably not that huge a deal. Um, so Minnesota, I guess, in some respects won that trade. But, look, I think Howard Howard two years ago was a really good player and didn't have a great year last year, but that team just had no bench last year. And they're starting Crystal Langhorn basically at the center position, extremely undersized. And so I, I that's kind of why I put him in neutral. Like I think Courtney Paris and Natasha Howard, are they the answer? Are they the players that are going to make this team contenders? No. But on paper, they did get better as far as their bench. Now, I think they lose out from an asset standpoint with – uh, like you said, with Coach Reeves' swap pick she negotiated. And that's kind of why I put them in neutral, because I feel like they got better, at least their bench, but they didn't get so much better, and they gave up that pick swap. So I think it's about – I think you could look at it kind of about as a wash. I mean, Courtney Paris, like I, I we've talked about this. I, I'm not a big fan of, of her defense, but I also think the scheme that was employed in Dallas didn't play to her strengths. I think if she's used more around the basket instead of coming up and hedging and just being asked to stay under the rim and get rebounds, she could be, at least as a backup post, a little bit more helpful. Yeah, definitely. I mean, she she in general, it used used correctly can be a nice weapon, but if used incorrectly, she's not that type of elite player who's just going to is gonna get some great numbers and great stats no matter what. Um, moving on to the Washington Mystics, who are probably missing – 
Um, oh, and, and just briefly on Seattle, they are missing Ramu, who's going to be focusing on her uh, national team commitments. And that is a blow to the team because she was a player who's still young in the league and growing as far as W skill. Um, so moving on to Washington, a team that had is going to be having the biggest missing player of the season in the league. Uh, Emma Meesman will not be back for the for the 2018 season as she's focusing on national team duties for FIBA. Um, what are your thoughts? I mean, they, they did sign Monique Curry, who can who can obviously be a scorer and will come in handy as far as a vet presence on this team. But do you see? I mean, I I came. I'm coming with the take that I, the hot take. This team's going to be better than they were last year. Yeah. Again, another team I put in neutral because they bring back. Pretty much they re-sign the key players and they bring in Monique Curry, which was kind of a bit of an under-the-radar signing, which I think will be helpful in the playoffs. I mean, I think we saw Curry, I think, I don't know, tell me what you think. I think in some ways she's a little overrated in that she has big moments and she hits big shots, but at this point in her career, she also has games where she scores zero points or is just completely quiet. So I think we'll see. I think that's a decent move. Um but they lose Misaman, and even though I even made the argument in the piece, like they were eight and three last year without Misaman, and I think it allows uh, Elena Deladon to play the four, which is a better position for her. Um, you know, Misaman's a, a really good player, and the advanced analytics are even higher on her than I think the eye test is. So I think we're being a little bit unfair to her. Yes, Washington played well without her, but like at the end of the day, when you lose an all-star caliber player, it's hard for me to say you got better. Um, but again, I still think adding Curry and the advantage they get with Deladon at the four is why I kind of put them in neutral. I felt like it was kind of a borderline call, so I didn't feel they were strongly a winner or a loser. I'll say this about uh, Curry. You know, stat padding or whatever you want to call it, stat fluffing when she was in San Antonio at, uh, with the Stars and the team was really, really struggling. But moving on to then Phoenix, we saw her play a role that I think she's going to be playing kind of similarly uh, in D.C., which is a much more specific role. In, in in San Antonio, I think like because of the way the team was playing, it was kind of like, hey, Mo, you know, run with it, do your thing, get us some points, we need you. As opposed to now, she can kind of focus, take it easy sometimes. You know, they got they got um, Tolliver, they got El- Deladon, they got Natasha Cloud coming back. So now she can kind of focus and kind of hone those skills. And I think that ability and, and just overall less wear and tear on the body this season, you're going to see the Monique, you're going to see a lot less of, of those zero games and a lot more of those, of those highlight reel games coming from her. Not to... Not to spend too much time on, on the Capitol team, we're going to move on a little north to the Connecticut Sun. They had a crazy season last year. They brought back, I mean, their, their whole roster is back, essentially, um, or the keys are. And you bring back the face of the franchise uh, with Shanae. What are your thoughts on them? Um, you know, th- th- like I said, if there was one team that maybe could have gone in the winners that didn't, it would be this uh, the Sun because... You know, they bring back Strickland, who is a good shooter, good good player for that team. And she was unrestricted, so it wasn't a guarantee. Um, And then Shanae's coming back, and that's, you know, another all-star level piece. So in some ways, they have more talent on the roster than they did last year, right? Because Shanae was out. But I do think, um, you know, their roster, they're so deep that, the minutes is going to be interesting for them. And all the minutes Shanae gets, it means Alyssa Thomas or John Quell Jones aren't on the court, one of them. So I think it's too soon to tell if it's like they're necessary. Like they were so efficient with their post play last year that as good as Shanae is, I wonder as far as advanced analytics, can it be much better? You know what I mean? Like, they were as good as it gets, Thomas and John Quill Jones. I felt their deficiency really was not really having a go-to scorer on the wing or as a guard. And so I think like that was really their biggest need. And like short of addressing that, I just feel like um, 
I don't know. They finished fourth last year. The Sinead coming back really, do you, like, I don't know if that to me makes them like move up anymore. I feel like I expect them to be like about where they were. Now moving on to the Chicago Sky. Um, the Sky, in my opinion, are in the best position in this draft because of the placement of their two first picks in the first round. Um, what do you what do you think? Like, I mean, is it what do you what do you see this team's needs? What did they gain in the in the offseason? What did they do? Just overall sky. Give me some sky talk. Yeah, they they had I don't know. They they were one we've taught when we did our offseason podcast on them, I think we both kind of agreed that they're just a hard team to figure out. Um, you know, they lose Cappy Pondexter and Jessica Breland. And I think that's a, a lot of that's a lot of production. You know, Breland, especially defensively, Cappy offensively. But I also think the way I look at it is just Amber Stocks now in year two, like she needs to establish her own culture, her own identity um, as far as personnel and the direction of the team. And I think to some extent, like at some point you kind of have to move on from the players that aren't in the future to kind of pave way for the next era. And I feel like with Coates coming in to either back up Dolson or play alongside Dolson and these two draft picks coming in, um, I don't know if having Breland or Cappy in the long term really fit what they're trying to do. Um, so I think like, again, I think you maybe could have called them losers in that sense, just because Breland is such a good piece, but I look at them as kind of what they did is just kind of clear up space um, to bring in, you know, two, like you said, two really quality players with a third and fourth pick. And then they did sign Alex Montgomery, who analytically isn't the greatest player, but if she's a backup three, I think it's hard to find true threes in the league. You know what I mean? Like a lot of guards are too small to really play on the wing. And then a lot of bigs aren't quite mobile enough. I think the one thing Montgomery, Alex Montgomery has going for is she kind of is a true wing player. So that, that, that'll be interesting. I, I expect her to be more of a backup. Um, I think if she's starting and playing a big role, that's not a good sign. Um, so I think all things being equal, I put them in neutral because, you know, they did lose those players, but, you know, I think they're in the best position in the draft. And that was through some trades they made. So you got to give them credit for that. Uh, we talk about this all the time. It, it, in a smaller league, also with with such a, a family community, it's really tough to make those decisions because the fan base really gets drawn in and tied to players. And so, when you bite the bullet and you make that decision, I think people need to applaud that more um, because that's that's the step in the right direction. I mean, that's that's how you win championships. You make the tough decisions. That's how teams like the Patriots are able to stay so so relevant for so long because they trade the player not because you know the the player's starting to play bad it's because they see a high value in a draft pick kind of similar to the trade that that Indy and Phoenix did you know biting the bullet saying we see value in this player right now and not necessarily in our future plans so let's take care of this now um so since we finished your article there's something that you know moving into the draft uh, being as as this is kind of uh, what's happening, what's about to happen tomorrow, probably when this podcast is released. Something that was brought up to us as we were discussing on Twitter with, with many different fans about ideas of what might happen in, in the, in the, the draft this year. Um, do you want to kind of break down what uh, shout out to the sky show shy? Um, he, he proposed that kind of got our head scratching. Yeah, because we've been talking a lot about potential trades, and he brought up one that I hadn't thought about, which was that if Indy takes Stevens too, then I think some of the dilemma is Chicago doesn't necessarily want a point guard, but people are saying, well, how could you pass up on Kelsey Mitchell? So a trade he proposed was they take Mitchell and Diamond to Shields, and then they trade Mitchell for whoever Indy takes at number eight. So that might be a Vivian's or a Gabby Williams. So Indy, for Indy's, uh, Indy's getting the two players they want, right? Like they're picking right now, most likely between Mitchell and Stevens. So for them, they get like two elite players. Chicago ends up, let's say, with 
Gabby Williams and Diamond to Shield. That's who they wanted from the get-go. But the kicker to this trade was Chicago, for trading back, would get a pick swap for 2019 first round. And Indy, in their rebuild, I feel like there's a good chance they'll be like back right back in the lottery. So then Chicago would have rights next season to that Indy pick. And Indy would get Chicago's pick. So I thought that was kind of a win-win, really. I mean, um, I don't know. Like for you, who says no for that trade in your mind? I, I don't because here's the thing. You know, typically, and, we, and we've talked about this a lot, the the value of a first-round draft pick, I think it, it, there's questions about, you know, what is the value of a first-round WNBA draft pick? But we can get into that later. That's a whole other pod in its own. But – when you're talking about that, to move a couple spots in what next year will be a deep draft, I just I don't see Chicago making such a giant leap that that Indy in this trade would be losing so much in bumping back in those spots. And that's why I think it's important. I think the, the kicker as far as what might come in the way of this trade, and we'll talk about this right now, the draft order. Because for that to work, that means that Seattle has to take Jordan Canada well, not has to take Canada, but you know Seattle won't take uh, won't take Williams. All right, and then Dallas doesn't take her, and then Washington doesn't take her. Now, you know, I think you can make the argument very easily that for Seattle, they are so big on Canada, they want Canada, they want Canada, and also I think Dallas wants Canada. So if we're working on that assumption, then it's pretty safe to say that Canada goes to Seattle. Dallas has to make a tough choice. Do they want Lexi Brown or do they want Gabby Williams? You know, kind of the classic, the best player or someone who fits our team. And then it kind of jumps to then Washington sitting there and Washington goes, huh, I could go Vivians or Gabby Williams. And something you said to me, you know, if, if you're Washington and you're sitting there, you have an option between Vivians and Williams. Are you really going to take Vivians over Williams? Do you really think that, that the, the family connection to Vivian's is going to affect the draft pick? Right. Well, like, for example, in our mock, I said Vivian's to Washington and Indy gets Gabby, but I prefaced our whole mock and said I included what I think should happen. Um, like, I think Vivian – like, what I like about Washington, what I think they have going for their team is all their players, other than Tierra Ruffin Pratt, are offensive threats, right? Um you know, Deladon, Christy Tolliver, Monique Curry, Taylor Hill, um, Natasha Cloud, even and even Ruffin Pratt and uh, Crystal Thomas in their role can score a little bit. And so I liked I want I think they need to keep that press on as far as having all these players that can score, um, especially with losing Messiman's point production. So I feel like Vivian's gives them a little more scoring upside, but I think just I don't know. I think the odds of Williams falling all the way to eight seem unlikely. I mean, before Stevens declared, she was projected to be the third or fourth pick going to Chicago. So it seems a little hard to believe she would drop all the way to eight just because one player enters the draft, right? Well, I think I think you're touching on the topic of what uh, of you know skill set versus fitting. Um, and do we really believe that there's going to be three teams that are going to say Gabby Williams isn't it like that? There's someone who fits so perfectly that we're not taking Gabby, you know? Exactly. So I think most likely Gabby Williams won't be there. So I don't think this trade happens, but if for some reason Williams does fall, that could be an interesting thought. Yeah. I mean that, that would be fun. And, and, and personally, I, I'm curious your take on this. I want to see some draft trade, draft day trades. I want to see some stuff happen. I, it's just fun for the league. I mean, and I, I, and I think it's great for the fans and, and fan engagement to see, you know, some players moving around or some cool motion. So it's not just the standard, this person got signed or this person got drafted, this person got drafted, you know, get, get a little bit more excitement's always fun. No, I agree. And I think, uh, again, for me, the story, a lot of attention on a lot of attention on Asia Wilson, but I just think this whole Steven story is fascinating. She declares less than two weeks before the draft. And I think people really, and we've been tweeting about it, are really kind of, I don't want to say sleeping on her because everyone still has her as like a top four pick and 
pretty much every mock draft I've seen. But I mean, she has like, I'll, I'll say it, like she might have the highest ceiling in this draft, even ahead of Asia Wilson. Um, there's just six six players that can play multiple positions like that. They just that's a rare thing. You know, every draft is going to have an elite guard, an elite post or two. But not every draft is going to have that, that kind of Deladon, Candace Parker kind of a player that just has guard ball skills but is a, is a forward. Yeah. So I think people really need to really think about that, um, just how rare it is to have a player with that size and skill set. Well, and, and I'll just, you know, before we wrap this up, if you haven't already, take a look at Eli's Twitter account. He posted a video of just and and the thing that stuck out to me that video of Stevens uh, working the post and passing out of the double team honestly was how smooth and nonchalant she was, and that's kind of why I posted the video because it wasn't a wow play, it wasn't an amazing spin move she made or a block shot. It was literally just a simple seal repost and kick out of the double team. And I wanted people to see look how long she is. I mean, she didn't even have to. Like you said, it was effortless just passing the ball being 6-6. Well, that, I mean, I love the breakdown, Eli, and thank you so much for, for sharing a little background or a, a BTS, if you will, behind the scenes of of what it went into, into your winners and losers of free agency. Well, we want to thank everyone for joining us, and a special thank you to Eli to, for giving us a an in-depth look at how he came up with the winners and losers of free agency, and then even going even deeper to figure out why we both feel so strongly about the positions of these teams. Stay tuned because we have some exciting stuff coming on draft day from Pat Ralph, who will be live at the WNBA draft in New York, getting some exclusive content for everyone following the WNBA Insider. And stay tuned for some exciting new news coming out shortly. I'm Arya Schwartz, along with Eli Horowitz, and this has been the WNBA Insider Show. Each week, we cover various topics in the W, using X's and O's and key stats, bringing honest and critical analysis.